Good morning. I want to start this morning with a little audience participation. I'm going to ask you here in just a moment to take a deep breath and then let it out, okay? So let's all do that together. Take a deep breath and hold it for a second, and then just let it out. What you did right there is a basic example of the sovereignty of God. The very fact that you get to draw breath, the very fact that you get to draw some, what is it, 24,000 breaths a day, some 8 million breaths a year, the very fact that you get to do that is a demonstration of the sovereignty of God. The God who is in control of everything, including your life, he allows you to live and breathe and function in this world. Here's how the Bible describes the sovereignty of God. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Psalm 135 and verse 6. Psalm 115 and verse 3 reads, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And then what Eddie read a moment ago. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. When I was a senior in high school up until I graduated from college and even a year after I graduated college, I was an assistant manager at Big Star Grocery Stores in Paragould, Arkansas. I think I've told you that before. I was so excited to be moved up to assistant manager. No more bagging groceries, no more stocking shelves. People would bow down to me as I sat up in my office and didn't have to do as much work as everybody else. Instant respect, more money. What I soon learned is it wasn't like that at all. My dear friends that I used to work with now resented me, some of them, because I was their boss. Um, it really wasn't a whole lot more money. And people don't bow down to you just because you carry a lot of keys. And so one of the biggest problems was that I was 19, 20, 21 years of age, and I was in charge of this entire store, a store that at that time made about $30,000 a day, and at night, I was the only manager that was there. I worked long hours. Being the lowest on the seniority list as, of managers meant that I worked all the hours the other managers didn't want to work. So I worked every Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m., some Wednesday, Wednesdays from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. There were a lot of times where I worked 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. You get the idea. Long, long hours. I spent a lot of time at the grocery store. But the most difficult thing about the job was that anytime something went wrong, the finger pointed right at me. An angry customer, a shoplifter, an employee that was incompetent or wasn't doing his job or showed up late or whatever, the finger always pointed at me and someone always asked the question, who's running the show? Who's in charge here? And folks, the sovereignty of God answers that question. The word that we're talking about this morning, sovereignty, is all about answering the question of who is running the show. 
And the Bible leaves absolutely no doubt as to who is running the show. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you, His host, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. God is infinitely above every creature. He is the Most High. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is in subjection to no one. He is influenced by nothing. God does as He pleases. He answers to no one. Everything is in subjection to Him. He does what He wants, when He wants, and He does it according to His good pleasure. Sovereignty means that God is God. Simple as that. Sovereignty means God is God. He sits on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things according to His will. All things past, present, future are under His control. All things are either caused by Him or allowed by Him. And that is what sovereignty is. And that raises some questions, doesn't it? Why an earthquake in Nepal that kills thousands? Why a hurricane in New Orleans that leaves so many fatalities? Why a tornado in Kansas that wipes out a whole town? Why an outbreak of Ebola or AIDS? Why a famine in Ethiopia? Why me and not them? Why out of all the people on this planet am I the one that gets an incurable disease? Why God? Why would you do this? Why would you allow this? How can a sovereign God be in control when things seem so out of control? How can a loving God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand allow the persecution of Christians? How can he permit the wicked to flourish while good people die of cancer? Why would God allow a little girl to face leukemia at three years of age? Why would God allow a, a, a young mother to pass from this life and leave her children? Who's really running the show? Because at times, it seems like the devil is. Who's in charge here? We might say it this way, if God is sovereign, then why didn't he do something? And we're not the only ones throughout history to ask that question. The prophet Jeremiah wondered how God could allow such despair. David asked, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Even Jesus, in the throes of mental anguish with the cross looming in the foreground, Ask God if there was some way to bypass the cross. Was there some alternative? And then there's Job. A lot of things about Job bother us. First of all, why is God talking to the enemy? Why is God offering up this blameless and upright man to allow Satan to torture? Why would God do something like that? Throughout the pages of Scripture, God's people have asked why. People have asked who's running the show. And of course, one option is to believe, as many do, that God is behind every minute detail, orchestrating every single bit of it. It's all a part of God's plan. You ever heard that? It's very simple. It's very, I don't know, I guess closely akin to the idea of everything happens for a reason. You've heard those things. No matter what it is, 
Triumph or tragedy, God must be behind it. He's working behind the scenes, right? No matter how bad it may seem, it's really good because God orchestrated it. But folks, a God that orchestrates a man running a red light at precisely the same time as a woman crossing the street with her three children is not a God worthy of our devotion. You've heard me say it before. God does not kill people. He does not kill a young mother because he needs her in heaven more. He doesn't kill babies because he needs an angel in heaven. That's not how God works. And if that is how God works, then, then I don't want any part of him. Do you? I don't want a part of a God whose plan is to cause all these bad things to happen. I mean, if Alzheimer's is somehow a blessing from God, then he can keep it. There are many on this planet who have decided because the wicked prosper and evil flourishes that God cannot be trusted. So we have two extremes here, don't we? Those who believe that God is orchestrating even the bad things and then those who believe that God cannot be trusted or maybe that there isn't even a God because bad things happen. One person stated it this way. She writes, Today, my brother was diagnosed with stage 3 lymphoma. My brother, the sweetest man who is a father, a son, an uncle, and a husband was given life-changing news. He never saw it coming. None of us did. We were told that in the next few weeks, his treatment will begin. My brother, a healthy 36-year-old man. My brother, who wouldn't hurt a fly. My brother, a man who has always believed and trusted in God. Today, our lives were changed forever. Today, I gave up on God. I lived out today like any other day. I was at a restaurant when I received the news. I even went shopping afterwards. I was in shock, and I refused to believe that I had actually heard the words I heard spoken. It wasn't until I got home that I let myself feel the pain. It wasn't until I got home that the tears came. I gave up on God today. I sat on our front porch. I recalled memories of us. I let a couple of tears fall. I talked to the dogs, I sang gospel songs, I got mad, I became angry with God, I got mad at the doctors who didn't catch this months ago, I wanted to scream at the unfairness of it all. Today, I gave up on God. I allowed fear to enter my heart and my mind, I questioned His plan for our lives, I asked if this is seriously His will, I gave up faith, I wanted to sit down and give up on life, I wanted to pause my life, I wanted to rewind time, I wanted to pray, but the words never came, I gave up on God today. And maybe some of you sitting here this morning have written a similar letter. Maybe you could recite the same words almost verbatim. And if so, I'm glad you're here today. Because I believe there's hope. And I want to try to instill you with that hope. I hope you'll listen to what else I have to say because I think everyone who feels that they have let, been let down by God who was supposed to be in control, I think maybe by the time this lesson is over, hopefully you'll understand and be encouraged that God is still in control. No matter what is going on in your life. Several years ago, there was a commercial on TV that, that just showed a woman sitting in her car, and then her door gets ripped open by a man who grabs her 
and pulls her out of the car, and, and you're looking on in horror thinking this man is attacking this woman, but just then the, the camera pulls back and reveals that her car is on fire. And the man was not attacking her. In fact, he was trying to rescue her by pulling her out of a burning car. She didn't even realize her car was on fire. And the tagline of the ad at the end says, you need a bigger picture. And when it comes to God, when it comes to the sovereignty of God, we definitely need a bigger picture. There is so much more going on around us than what meets the eye. And while the question of why will never fully be answered in this life, we can find encouragement in the fact that God has a plan. This isn't random. This isn't arbitrary. This isn't nebulous. God has a plan for his people. And don't you feel better no matter what's going on in your life, knowing that there's a plan? I mean, if the doctor tells you you have cancer, but he says, I think we can beat this. I'm, I'm very sure that we can beat this, and here's the plan for beating it. But I think at the end of this, you're really going to be surprised. You're really going to be pleased because I think there's a really good cure rate with this kind of cancer based on the treatment we're going to do. You don't really want to go through the treatment. You don't want to be sick. You don't want to have to face losing your hair and all those kind of things. But don't you feel better knowing that there's a plan? Why? Well, because there's hope, Right? The worst thing is to live life with no hope. The worst thing is to face any kind of situation without hope. It's kind of like when I was hired as the basketball and baseball coach at Cord Charlotte Schools. You know, I talked to the school board, and they said, do you have any questions for us? I said, yes. I, I mean, how good's the team? And the superintendent said, you won't win two games. They're terrible. They had had a lot of success, and the coach got out while the getting was good. He knew that he didn't have any talent coming up, and so he got out of there. But before I came on, they had a whole lot of success. And so it was my responsibility to come in and try to build it back up. And one thing that I tried to get the kids to buy into is trusting the process. You hear that phrase a lot. We're going to try to change the culture. We're going to try to get back to winning. We're going to try to reload and build and all those kind of things. But for you seniors, I'm sorry. It stinks for you. You're going to suffer through a bad year. Your last year is going to be tough. We're not very good. You need thoroughbreds to win, and you're a bunch of mules. It's going to be hard. But trust the process. You younger guys, trust the process, because at the end of it, we may not win a whole lot, but we're going to have some fun, we're going to build some character, and we're going to be better when it's all said and done. There's a plan in place. God is like that coach who's who's telling us to trust the process. It may be difficult now. You may go through some things, but in the end, you're going to be well-pleased. There is hope on the horizon. When we talk about trusting the process or seeing the bigger picture, we're really talking about what I would say are three twos. And the first of these is two wills. You know as well as I do, there are two wills in the world today. There is God's will, and there is Satan's will. And the reason it seems like Satan's winning at times is because he is. He is. If it seems like the devil is winning, that's a good assessment, because he is at times. 
1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's a thief that comes in and to kill and to destroy. His aim is to destroy families and relationships and marriages and churches. He seeks to stir up controversy, hatred, division, strife, and quarreling. He wants to steal your purity, your honesty, your integrity, your reputation, your decency, even, even your godly trait that you might have whatever it is he wants to rid it of your life he is a liar he is a murderer he is a powerful influence in this world and he's going to stop at nothing to take as many people with him to hell as possible in the beginning there was only one will god's will but you know the story, Satan rebelled, he was kicked out of heaven, and now there are two wills at work. There is light and darkness, there is truth and falsehood, there is life and death. Why did God set it up this way? Why did he allow there to be two wills? Why did he not just throw Satan into hell immediately after his rebellion and keep his perfect creation intact? Well, as Christians, we believe five things, don't we? Let me remind you as Christians what we believe. We believe that God exists. We believe that God is good. We believe that God is omnipotent or all-powerful. And we believe that God is omniscient or all-knowing. And fifth, we believe that evil exists. So how can we believe all those five things at the same time? Surely we're off base somewhere. Surely all of those things can't be right at the same time. I mean, we can believe the first four, but how can we also believe that evil exists? If God is good, then he wants only good. If he is all-knowing, then he knows what's good. Evil is not good. Therefore, should we conclude that a good, omniscient, omnipotent God doesn't exist? Maybe one of those things isn't true. No, the truth of the matter is all of those things can be true all at once, and we can believe all of those things at the same time. The reason why we can believe that is because the source of all evil is not God. God did not create evil. He is not the source of evil. God created a world where there is the possibility of evil. Because not even God could create a world where there's free will, yet no possibility of sin. When God created mankind with free will, he built into that decision the opportunity for evil and all the consequences that come with it. And so the next question is, well, why didn't God just create a world without human freedom? And the answer is, then that would be a world without humans. You can't do that. Yes, there would be no suffering, no murder, no hate, no violence, but there would also be no love. And just read through the Bible to find out God's stance on love. You ever notice God's position on love? It's supreme. It's above all else. God is love, the Bible says. Love means everything to God. And real love, which is a love for God and a love for others, involves a choice. But with that choice comes the possibility that some might choose hate. And a sovereign God still sees the option to choose as worth the risk. The atheist's primary argument against the existence of God is that if there is a God, then why is there good? I mean, why is there, why is there evil and why is there suffering? If God is good, if God exists, then why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? But I don't know if the atheist even recognizes that by their reasoning or their rationale... By posing that question, 
They're recognizing that the evil in the world assumes that there's an objective standard, right? I mean, just to recognize that there is bad, that there is evil, and to know that that's not right, recognizes that there's also a standard of absolute good, correct? There's a presumption or a presupposition of a difference between good and evil. So to say that evil and suffering is not right is to assume that there is some supreme good. And where does that supreme good come from? We've got to stop giving God the credit for the devil's handiwork. A fallen world is the devil's playground. This fallen world includes pain and suffering and wickedness and natural disasters. And it is the direct result of sin. God is not the author of evil. He created the possibility of evil, but he didn't create evil. And some would say, well, why doesn't he just destroy the devil? Well, he will. But until that time, we live on this this spiritual battlefield. And many are wounded. Many our casualties of war. But we've got to keep fighting. That brings me to the second two. Two perspectives. There are two ways that we can look at life. One is from the top down and one is from the bottom up. Now my guess is most of us look at life from the bottom up. When you look at life from the bottom up, you start with your problems. You zero in on your issues. And then you move your way up to God. The best way to look at life, the best perspective is to look at it from the top down. You look at God first. You start with God. And then you move down to your problems. When you start with you, you're going to end up with you. When you start with God, you'll end up with God. Make sense? So there's two perspectives here. God is the correct starting point. Think about Job. This blameless and upright man from us, he faces the unimaginable loss. He, he, he has this series of, of trials and tribulations. Not only does he lose his, his children, he loses his financial security, his wealth, and then on top of it, he loses his health. He finds himself sitting on an ash heap, scratching these sores that have covered his body. And if you know anything about the book of Job, much of it is a dialogue between him and his so-called friends who are seeking to answer the question of why. Same question we all have, right? And in their reasoning, in the reasoning of Job's so-called friends, the why, the answer to the why is because you have some outstanding sin that you're not recognizing. If you would just repent, God would forgive you. But God is doing all of this to you because you've done wrong. We call this retribution thinking, and it still exists in some religions today. The problem was, the friends were not answering the question correctly. They blamed Job, and in the process they blamed God. Their belief was, of course, that God was punishing Job for sin. What's interesting about the book of Job is that the why question never seems to be answered by God. Not directly. God never seems to directly answer that question. Apparently, Job never discovers Satan's role in his suffering or why God allowed it. He's left in the dark as to specific answers. But in the end, Job had a change of of, of mind and heart and really becomes a changed person. Notice what is written in chapter 42 and verse 2. It says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours 
can be thwarted. After all that he has been through, after all that Job has dealt with, he is left with no other response than to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. To say that in the end, God, you're in control and you have a plan and I recognize that now and I repent. So, I've got to ask myself, am I willing to accept what Job did? Am I willing to accept that God is in control even when everything seems to be out of control? Am I really willing to accept that God has a plan? That he knows what he's doing even when I don't know what he's doing? When I look at life from the top down, I start with the one that's in control, and I accept that this life was never promised to be comfortable and convenient. I understand that my life is about something bigger, that this life is preparation for eternity, and therefore, while I may not always comprehend the why, I trust that God does, and my God has an impeccable track record. Perfect. Who better to trust than one who is perfect and in charge? Let me ask you this. Suppose that uh, a detective knocks on your door. Okay, uh, uh, Anthony, I'm going to single you out for just a second. Suppose a detective knocks on your door, Anthony, and you, you answer it, and you don't know why the detective is there, but you ask him to come in, and you say, you know, how can I help you? And the, detec- the detective says, we caught your wife, Sherry, maiming and killing 15 people. What would your response be? I mean... You're probably going to laugh hysterically. And he presses you a little further and he says, what are you laughing about? I mean, we caught her maiming and killing 15 people. She's in custody right now. You'd probably respond by saying, okay, look, my wife could never do that. That's not in her. That's that's just not who she's about. You've got the wrong person because I know my wife. And the detective says, well, where's your proof? Where's your evidence? Well, where would your evidence be? I mean, it's, it's a different kind of evidence, right? I mean, maybe you don't have the kind of evidence that he's looking for, but it's a prejudice type of evidence. It's, it's biased, you could say, because it comes from real-life experience, right? Does that make sense? This, you following the illustration? And so you have this, this prejudice, biased evidence that comes from real-life experience. You know your wife better than that detective does, better than anybody does. And you know that she is not even capable, nor would she ever think about doing something like that. And the same is true with us, and that brings me to two choices. The, the third two is that we have an evidence that's, that's unlike the atheist or anybody else. It's prejudice, it's bias, but it comes from real life experience. We know God. We know what he's capable of. We know what he has done for our life. We can attest to that, Right? All of us have a choice. We can choose to dismiss the sovereignty of God on the basis of evil and suffering. And we can side with the atheist or we can, we can be depressed and we can be down and out and we can say, you know, I just don't know if I believe in God anymore. We can choose not to accept the sovereignty of God in the midst of our trials and tribulations. We can choose to not accept the sovereignty of God when everything's going well. And we can say, you know what, my life is comfortable and convenient. I don't think God's in control, but what's it matter? And all that's fine and good until what? Understand the consequences of that. Think this through before you think that you're intelligent and enlightened and all of that. Think this through. What are the consequences of choosing 
not to believe in a sovereign God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 18, it reads, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So, you can choose to not believe in the sovereignty of God. You can deny his rule and his reign, but just understand that when you give up God, you give up something else. And you know what you give up? You give up hope. So you can say, well, I I just can't believe in a sovereign God. I can't believe in a God who is in control. Okay, well, that's fine and good, but how's that going to play out when you're lying on your deathbed? What then? How's that play out when your spouse is lying on their deathbed and you're holding their hand when their heart pumps for the last time? Then what? Where does it leave you? Understand what you're giving up when you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Someone's got to be in control here. Who's running the show? And if you don't believe God is, then what do you believe? Just a bunch of random things going on in the universe. Well, that's fine and good, but where's the hope in that? Isn't there more hope in believing that God has a plan, even if that plan doesn't make sense? Isn't it more encouraging to know that God has a plan, even if I don't always truly understand or can see that plan? You know, it's so easy to dismiss the sovereignty of God when everything's going well, but what about when adversity hits? What about when your life is spinning out of control? It's harder to believe in a God who's in control then. That's tough, but guess what? That is also faith. That's hope. And trust me, it is your only stability in a completely unstable world. And so we we groan, as Paul says. We long, we wait eagerly for our liberation from decay that human sin has brought into this world. And we anticipate redemption. We cannot wait for the day when there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more tragedy, no more sin, no more death. A day when our sovereign God reveals the glory that we have hoped for. This isn't as good as it gets. Remind yourself of that. No matter how great your life is right now, it gets better. No matter how bad your life is right now, it gets better. And one message that we see play out over and over again in the Bible is this. There is hope on the horizon. No matter what, there is hope. That's why God sent His Son. Your life could be crumbling all around you there's a better life. God has a plan. Romans 8, 18 and following tells us that plan. 
this isn't as good as it gets. There is hope, and that hope is predicated upon us having faith in the one who is running the show. I read you something a moment ago from a lady who, is, who was journaling about her brother being uh, diagnosed with stage 3 lymphoma. What I didn't share with you is that her letter that I read to you at the beginning, that, that wasn't the end of her letter. She kept writing. I just cut it off there. Let me, let me continue with what she wrote. She said, today I, give up, I gave up on God. I allowed fear to enter my heart and my mind. I questioned his plan for our lives. I asked if this is seriously his will. I gave up the faith. I wanted to sit down and give up on life. I wanted to pause my life. I wanted to rewind time. I wanted to pray, but the words never came. I gave up on God. In the midst of my shock and my anger, I gave up on God. I gave up on God letting us plan our own lives. I gave up on God letting us call the shots. I gave up on relying on my own plans for life. Today, I gave up on God. The hardest part is ahead. Chemotherapy will begin within the next month, God willing. Our family will be tested. I am still in shock, and I know the reality of this will hit me full force in the upcoming days. I know I will lose my composure. I know that God's will will be waiting for me when I fall. In the midst of this storm, I fervently pray for both my brother and my family. My dear, sweet friends, please help me pray. And above all, remember that tomorrow is not promised. Live while you're alive. Give your all to God and give up on Him allowing you to plan your life. Get up on, uh, give up on him allowing you to have the final say. He has the final say. He sees the whole picture. He knows more than your friends, your advisors, and even the doctors. He has all the power. So walk boldly and strongly in the Lord. Stand firm in the faith. That's sovereignty. That's a woman who recognizes the sovereignty of God in the midst of personal tragedy. And I think her words speak to us. Give up on God. Give up on planning your own life and saying that it's God's will. No, give in to God's will truly, faithfully. Understand that He's in control. Who's running this show? Well, God is. Let me read a portion of another letter. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there are always those among us who are dealing with difficult circumstances. There are always those that are hurting who need our prayers and our comforts. We pray, God, for those folks, and we pray that, that no matter what happens in our life, whether we're down or up, that we constantly give you 
all the glory, that we trust in your plan, that while we ask the question of why, we seek to answer the question of how, how we can give you our all even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Help us to see the bigger picture. Help us to look at things from the top down and help us to see, God, that you are running the show no matter what. And help us, God, to understand that this life is preparation for eternity above all else. And so we pray, whatever it takes to get us there and to prepare us, may it come. We love you, God. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Maybe you have a need this morning that we can help you with. You'd like the prayers of this church family. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling in your relationship to God. Maybe you're ready to begin focusing on a relationship with God. You want to study the Bible with someone. We want to help you with that this morning. This is a loving congregation that wants to help you. And we understand that people, that where you have people, you have problems, don't you? So let us help you. Whatever your need might be, come now as we stand and as we sing.